John 4, 1 through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So it came to my attention this week that we have a bit of a crisis on our hands in our service uh, at the moment that just happened. And what happens is a worship, the scripture reader comes up, and then they say, this is the word of the Lord, and then no one's quite sure what we're supposed to do next. And some, some of you sit down, some of you like, amen, or good word, or 
Thanks be to God. So we have not given you clarity on that. So I'm going to formalize our liturgy this morning. Uh, it is not compulsory. It's voluntary. But that my suggestion is after the, this is the word of the Lord, we can all respond with thanks be to God. Okay? And it's just a way of saying, Lord, thank you for your word. Thanks for this beautiful gift that we have, what we've just received. So let's practice for next week. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the word of the Lord. Yes. Well done. That was, yeah, that was really well done. Yeah. That's, uh, I won't say, I, someone told me that, and I was like, you're right. We, we have not given you clarity on that, so now we all have clarity. And that felt good, didn't it? Um, so, all right. Well, uh, we're looking at these encounters with Jesus. Uh, man, this is one of the most beloved encounters in all Scripture, yes, for many of us. And there's about 10 sermons in this encounter, and I'm only going to preach two of them today. <laughs> Um, and I'll try to keep each one to like 15 minutes. Um, and I'll even give you a little break in between them so you know when they're, when they're changing up. Um, but I love, I so love this, this moment and this encounter. I love what we learn about Jesus and um, what we learn about the human heart as well. And so what I want to do this morning is, I've got two, two short sermons for you. Um, one, I want to look at this encounter through Jesus' eyes. Uh, and then second, I want to look at this encounter through this woman's eyes and see what we learn uh, from each perspective. So let's look first through Jesus' eyes. And uh, I really only have one, I mean, there's so much we could say about Jesus. But the thing that really hit me this week, it's not a new idea, but it, it caught me in a new way, is just seeing how many barriers Jesus crosses, culturally and otherwise, to engage and love this woman. And I know this is, again, this isn't new for most of you, but I want to actually spend some time thinking about that today and just think about what are the different barriers that he is willing to cross to engage this woman, okay? So uh, let me just, you know, context, Jesus is actually been down in the south near Jerusalem. He's heading back up north in Galilee, and right in the middle of Israel is the whole area of Samaria. So he's passing through Samaria, and let's see here, do I have... Oh, there we go. Uh, he comes to a well, which an ancient well probably looks something like this in the heat of the day. And your translation might say Jesus sat by the well. Most likely, it actually says, and Jesus sat on the well. Okay, so he's sitting on this well at the heat of the day, and this woman approaches him. And I just want you to think of the various barriers that he crosses to engage this woman. First, of course, we know he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. So there's a, there's a cultural, historical barrier. And many of us know that there's hostility. We don't know what the source of that was. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit about it. So this goes back centuries before when Israel was a nation and these foreign armies came and conquered them. They captured the people, the Jewish people, and took almost all of them into exile in places like Babylon. They deported them to their own place to be slaves. Some of the Jewish population was, of course, left behind in the land. And then these four nations came and repopulated the land, and those folks, those foreigners, intermarried with the remaining Jewish population. So, those, which, so they intermarried with them, they became a mixed race, if I can say it that way, and then they, they brought their religion too, and they became kind of a, a mixed religion, and that's who the Samaritans are. Those who were left behind, they got intermingled with Gentiles, and then what happened was then a policy change happened in the foreign land that allowed the Jews to actually return to their land, so now the pure blood Jews 
come back into the land. And when they come back, how that goes down with those Samaritans who are left, all sorts of things go down. There's betrayal, there's conflict, there's fights, uh, there's resentment. And that happens. Multiple things happen over a couple centuries. So you've got like centuries of built up resentment. It's actually not that different from, you think about like the Jewish-Palestinian situation today, right? You had like ethnic Jews out in Europe who got slaughtered, right? And then in the early 1900s, they come back into the land and there's another group of people that are already there. And how all that goes down, you have the situation we have today where you have deep, deep resentment and hostility between these people groups. And if you've been there, you can almost feel the tension. So this is kind of what's going on between Jews and Samaritans. No loss of love between these people. Uh, Just so so you know how the disciples felt about Samaritans, listen to this. This is another passage. Uh, Jesus sent messengers on ahead, another time where he's going through Samaria, who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there would not welcome him uh, because he's heading for Jerusalem. So they said, you can't come into our town. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? (laughs) Okay, they've been experiencing their newfound power, and they thought, we could judge these Samaritans. So this is is how these people feel about each other. You've got a historical tension. Uh, Of course, you have a racial tension. The Samaritans are are half-breeds in the language of Lord of the Rings, okay? Or if you're a Harry Potter fan, they're mudbloods. They are not pure and not pure race. Uh, and then you have, you also have, I'd call it like a ritual element. Uh, look at verse 9 in your translations. The end of verse 9 says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And then you probably have a footnote there. And if you follow the footnote, it says, or you could translate that as Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. So picture our racial history in our in our country, and remember signs like by bathrooms that say whites only, or drinking fountains that say whites only. There's almost like a ritual, like we don't want to touch what those other people have touched. And so for Jesus to, to have this Samaritan carrying this jar, it might be like a leather pouch or a jar, and he's going to like drink from the same thing that she's touched. There's a, there's a ritual element behind that. So, so Jesus is essentially ignoring about 300 years of bias and prejudice that every good Jewish man would have been raised in to engage this woman. So you've got a cultural, racial issue. You've also, of course, got a gender issue of a man speaking with a woman. And actually, as I read this, that's kind of the thing that comes out. Like, when he engages her, look at how the Samaritan woman responds in verse 9. You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, what? Woman, right? Not only are you Jewish, but I, you're a man and I'm a woman. When the disciples come back to see Jesus talking to this person, it's the fact that she's a woman that really uh, throws them off. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you, what do you want or why are you, why are you doing this, right? But there, what is he doing talking to a woman? So a famous first century Jewish rabbi wrote this, one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife, because of the gossip of men. It is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. 
Okay, so, so what is supposed to happen is as Jesus sees this woman approach, culturally speaking, he's supposed to withdraw to about like 20 or 30 feet to let her know this is culturally, and you're safe and this is a culturally appropriate thing to do. She's supposed to get water and then he's supposed to go back to the well himself. And so I just think it's wild that, um, you know, imagine he's sitting on a well and she starts approaching him and this man just keeps sitting there and maybe he's looking at her and he doesn't withdraw. And I, I wonder what was going on in her mind. Like, there's a sort of a stranger threat. Like, what, what is this man doing right now? Like, some of you women who, you know, imagine, you know, you're driving through a rough town or something, and you stop at night to get gas at the gas station, right? Imagine if another guy pulls up in his car and, like, starts to engage you at night, right? You're, you're, there's a kind of a threat assessment that you're doing. I imagine she's, she's doing that in, in this moment. So there's, there's a, a deep uh, gender boundary that he's crossing in that day. Uh, and then, of course, one more thing is there's a massive moral <laughs> boundary, right, that he's crossing. He is a, this man is a righteous, respectable, religious rabbi, Jewish leader. And this woman is clearly a woman of questionable moral status. And the fact that she's coming, she comes at noon, this is noon, the fact that she comes to draw water alone in the heat of the day, that tells you what her, her moral and social standing in her village is. Because all the women would come at the, you know, in the morning when there's no heat, and they would always come together. You never come by yourself as a woman, you come in a group. And so the fact that she's coming in the heat of the day by herself tells us she is a persona non grata in her community. She has a, uh, she's a moral outcast in her community. Uh, and Jesus is a righteous, religious rabbi. And so, I spent some time on this, but every respectable Jewish man in that day would have seen this woman and would have said, this is a Samaritan traitor to be hated. Okay, this is a woman to be avoided. Uh, this is a sinner to be shunned. And Jesus sees all of that, but he also sees what we talked about last week. He sees this woman and he sees harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion on her and he breaks every possible barrier of his day to lovingly engage this woman. And I've spent some time, you know, talking about it. We've, I've dedicated a lot of time to that, but I just want to stop there uh, because, again, this wasn't a new thought to me, but I was really inspired and honestly convicted by that. And Jesus does this all the time. This is not like a one-off. He's always breaking barriers to engage people. And I was thinking, I'm going to keep bringing this passage up throughout the series of what 1 John 2, 5 says. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And one thing that is so obvious about how Jesus lived is he was constantly breaking these boundaries to engage people. And so the question is, is, is that how I live? A am I the kind of person who naturally does that kind of thing? I mean, it's one thing to say I believe in Jesus, like I believe in these truths about the Bible. But do we actually live our lives the way that Jesus lived his life? And here's one of the ways that is so utterly clear in the Gospels. And so I want to sit with this together and go, do we embody this? 
And especially, I mean, our world is more fragmented now than ever, right? If you want categories for people today, barriers around people, we have more categories than we've ever had before. And so more than ever, the church needs to be a place of people who can break through those categories to engage people. And so let's just think. I mean, there's all, I got nothing that's not obvious, but all the obvious categories. And think about how do you, what do these boundaries mean for you in relationship? So, of course, right now we've got big political categories. Right? We've got left and right. And what am I, how willing am I to engage people who I know are, you know, completely on the other side? This, this person's wearing a red hat, you know. Am I going to engage that person? This person's got a BLM shirt on. Am I going to engage? What am I going to do with that person? Um, we have gender categories. Now we have more gender categories, right? Not just male and female But what about a person who has a different sexual orientation than me? Someone who's gay, someone who's trans. What is my likelihood to engage that person, to break whatever barrier that creates in my mind or my heart and to lovingly engage that person? Um, What about socioeconomic categories? That person is so stinking rich, right? That person lives on the streets. That's a big barrier? Am I the kind of person who's likely to just kind of cross that barrier to engage somebody, to love somebody? Uh, We can think of racial categories. We can even think of ethical categories, people that in our mind are the persona non grata, right? Morally. What's my likelihood to engage those people? And I would guess if we are honest in this room, some of us would say, I just avoid those kinds of people. Uh, And others of us probably say, I do engage, and I'm smiling, and I'm friendly, but if I'm honest, there's a lens throughout the whole conversation that is in my head that's like, yeah, but you're gay. Yeah, but you're wearing a BLM shirt, you know? Yeah, but you're, you don't have a house. Um, Like, I'm, I'm doing my best, but there's this lens that I'm seeing the whole conversation through. And I, I just, it's like I can't even get that lens off. off, off. Um, I was really struck. There's a, there's a great passage in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, where Paul says this. He's talking about what happens when we come to faith. We're a new creation. And he says this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And that word, what he says, literally says, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, according to human ways of categorizing and summing people up. Once we come to Jesus, those old sort of worldly distinctions are very different in our minds. And I gave a sermon on this years ago. Some of you will remember the phrase, according to the flesh. We don't we don't view people according to the flesh. The Greek phrase is kata sarka. Kata is according to, and sarka sarks is flesh. Okay, I want you to say it. Kata sarka. Yeah, it's not kaka sarta. It's, you know, that's, don't say that. It's kata sarka. According to the flesh, and, and, I, and there's a lens that we take off with the compassion of Jesus. So uh, I've done this before, this is years ago, but um, these are my Katasarka glasses. I have some Katasarka glasses. And uh, when I put these on, these are the lens that I th- see you through. And when I see you through Katasarka lenses, I see uh, progressive, conservative, right? Gay, straight, black, white, uh, 
you, you name it, right? Rich, poor. I've got these, these lenses that I'm seeing. And they're real categories. It's not these, these don't exist. But this is the, the, the dominant lens that I'm seeing you through. And Paul says, when we come to Christ, we take these off. We no longer regard people primarily kata sarka. And he says, we once regarded Christ this way, right? Before faith, we regarded Christ with those lenses. And with those lenses, Christ is not a very impressive person. Right, he's born poor, right? didn't, didn't earn much, wasn't that successful, highly unsuccessful with the most of the people he preached to, got himself killed. How, how much more of a failure can you be than that, right? But then the Spirit worked in us, and we see Christ through the Spirit. And that's what we begin to do in the world. We no longer regard people primarily, I think Paul would say. Of course, these categories exist, and of course, there's meaning behind them but we're able to push through those. And um, here's what, I, what really caught me. You know, Jesus just breaks every cultural barrier of his day. But in doing that with this woman, he is not wishy-washy with her at all. He does not compromise his convictions one bit. He doesn't skirt around issues and avoid issues in any way. I mean, I was thinking about like what he does. Like verse 16, right? He told her, go call your husband, right? Well, you're right you don't have a husband. You actually have had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband, right? He, he, goes, he goes right after her, her stuff. And then she, um, did you like, I heard Chaz say, she kind of deflects to a theological argument, like, what about the place of worship? You know, like, oh, I got conflicted. Let's talk theology for a second. Uh, but they get in a theological argument about the place of worship. And Jesus says in verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews, which is to say, uh, actually, you're wrong and we're right. Right? So Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't compromise his convictions. He doesn't compromise truth. And yet somehow this woman comes away from time with him feeling loved and valued and seen. And actually her life is utterly transformed. Okay? We're not Jesus. We can never pull off what he pulls off here. But I just find that really interesting. Like how do we become the kinds of people? We need to develop an imagination for becoming the kinds of people who, are, who would cross any boundary to engage people lovingly, but without compromising our convictions. And so, I just want to pause, because this is the end of Sermon 1. Um, keep, going. keep going. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me say this. I don't know if this is convicting to you. Let me say something encouraging. If the Spirit of God is in you, which is say, if you are a believer in Jesus, this is your future. Like, if the Spirit is working in you, He's going to make you, over time, more and more like Jesus. And so what that means is, more and more, your future will be being this kind of person. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I guess eternity is uh, people of all tribes and nations, right? So we're going to have all sorts of diversity and eternity that we get to uh, be with each other. But this is not only something to strive for, this is your future, if the Spirit is working in you. And so that's an encouraging thing to think about. So what I want to do is I just want to pause and actually just, because I'm going to totally shift gears for sermon number two. Um, I just want to, I want to just lay this before the Lord. And uh, if you would just go with me in prayer, and if, if you want, you can close your eyes. And I want you just to like bring the Lord, like invite the Lord into your life right now just like think for a second 
Are there categories of people that you would be like, I am not like you in this way, Jesus. I would not engage this person the way you do. Uh, and maybe there's, or maybe there's a specific person in your life, at work or in your neighborhood or even in your family. But I, just sit with this for a second and ask, like, Jesus, what do you have for me? Is there, is there, is there a, a fresh <laughs> opportunity that you have for me? And just sit with the Lord. What in let the Spirit bring up whatever He wants to bring up, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pray for us in a second. Lord Jesus, uh, we just open our hearts to You. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, the fearful, the confident. Would You give us a, a fresh imagination for the kinds of people we can be in this very categorized world? Um, would You give us compassion? Would You give us Your heart of compassion for others? But also give us courage, give us boldness, give us clear conviction uh, that's able to not compromise you or truth uh, while still loving. And we know that we, not all these encounters are going to end this way. We could do the very best and things could still fall apart. That's not really up to us. We know that. But would you give us a fresh imagination and courage and compassion for the people around us? We know there are people that we encounter every day who you want to reach and that you might be using us. So, Lord, we want to just be more willing vessels, open to moving, being prompted uh, by you to, to engage and just leaving the results up to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. That was the longer of the two sermons. Let's look at this conversation through the woman's eyes. I'll be, I'll be brief about this, but this is really the heart of this conversation. It's a heart about water and about thirst, right? Uh, and it begins uh, with this woman encountering a man who is clearly very thirsty, right? Who's in need of water from her. But what I love is this man ends up completely turning the tables on this woman and confronting her with just how very thirsty her soul is and how he has a kind of water to offer her uh, that nobody else can offer her. And I just, it's such a beautiful, I love this theme and what Jesus does here. So let's try to, if you would, just try to like step into this woman's uh, sandals, if you will, and um, think about this through, through her eyes, right? So you're, you're coming uh, to get water by yourself in the heat of the day because you're shunned by your community. Uh, and the reason is, uh, among other things, is uh, you've had five husbands. Okay, so right now I want you guys to scan your social networks. Um, do, you, do you know anybody who's had, uh, been through five marriages? And I would guess a couple of you do. I'm sure many, many of us could say three or four. Maybe some of us in this room have had three or four. Um, but I just want you to think about that for a second. Five, okay? All gone, all done. And every one of us in this room is, has had an intimate experience of divorce. Uh, whether that's ourselves or our parents um, or our children or close friends, right, or siblings. So we all know the, uh, the pain of that, the, the wounds, the resentments, the, the disappointments, okay? We all know that. And just imagine that five times. Okay, what, what, 
what the, the sense of, um, and the social stigma in a very conservative, ancient Eastern society, much more so than in Western, you know, America, okay? So imagine the, 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 the sense of failure, potentially, or disappointment, or loneliness, or isolation. Uh, her soul is so thirsty, thirsty for acceptance, for companionship, for security. Uh, it's very possible she had a very tough uh, childhood. I wouldn't be surprised. And there's a massive gap in her life, okay? So you imagine that's her experience, and she's walking to this well, uh, and as she's approaching, there's, there's this strange foreign man sitting on this well, and she keeps walking, and, and rather than withdrawing, like I said, he just sits there, and I imagine he's looking at her as she's approaching, okay? So there's a, there's a, there's a set, sense of threat or a sense of, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do here, but she keeps going. Uh, and then he asks her for water. And I imagine his tone is, is safe. Uh, but, at the, but at the same time, an utterly surprising question. You, you, she would never expect that question from this clear, clearly Jewish man. And so she says what any woman in her situation of that day would say, right? Like, why are you, a person like you, asking a person like me for, for water? There's, this is nothing appropriate about this whole scenario right now. Uh, and then, then the conversation starts to get strange, I would imagine, for her. Okay, look at verse 10. Then Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this man says, uh, you don't know who I am. Uh, you think I'm a stranger. I'm, I'm not a stranger, actually. And if you knew that, uh, you would ask me for living water. And I, I imagine when this woman hears that phrase, living water, she would think of spring water, running water, as opposed to still water, like well water. So he's talking about some sort of running water. And she responds in verse 11 by basically saying, uh, sir, you're, you're in no position to offer me much of anything. I think you're the one without the bucket, and uh, you're the one who's thirsty, right? <laughs> That's basically what she says. You've got nothing to draw with the wells deep. Uh, are you greater than, uh, you know, Jacob and all that? And then this man responds to you, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, I'm not talking about an external source of water that you keep coming back to. I'm talking about an inner source of water. I'm talking about something happening inside of you, of like a, an inner spring. The spring I'm talking about is something that happens inside of you this spring that refreshes your soul, that satisfies your longings and your emptiness and your brokenness, your desires for love and acceptance and security and significance, all those things. I'm talking about something that refreshes those kinds of things. Uh, in John 7, Jesus will identify the spring of living water with the Holy Spirit. The very presence, I'm talking about the very presence of God, refreshing you and then overflowing to the people around you. And by now, this woman is, I think, very curious and intrigued, right? And she says, well, I'll, I'll take that. 
I'm not sure what you're talking about, but I'll take that. And then verse 16, Jesus says, "Um, why don't you go call your husband and come back? And that, of course, triggers deep insecurity in her, and she's going to deflect that like anybody would. And so she she speaks the truth, uh, kind of, right? I don't have a husband. Uh, and then, uh, and then comes the bombshell of the conversation, right? Verse 17, you're right. You spoke truly when you said you had no husband. The truth is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. You have indeed said what is quite true. Now, I just want you, can you imagine? Okay, you, you go to a well. There's first a random, a random traveler who... Uh, breaks all conventions, and then who's very interesting and curious and intriguing, and then also you find, oh my gosh, this, I have no idea who this guy, where he came from, this guy knows everything about my life. Like, imagine that. I have no idea who this man is. He knows my life. In fact, he knows the darkest detail of my life. That would be so, I mean, like, so radical. And, and, and what he's getting at with her is this, essentially. Every day, you've been coming to this well. And that's like your life. You're, you have been so thirsty. Your soul has been so thirsty your whole life, and you've been trying to satisfy that with a man, with a, with a relationship. And you keep going back to that well again and again. Five times you've gone back to that well. And now you're not even married with this guy. Maybe you've given up on marriage, but you're still with a man. And it's not working. And your soul is so thirsty. There's so much ache and longing in your soul. Uh, Jeremiah 2.13, God speaking to his people. I I love this, uh, this image. God says this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And this is the human condition. We are these creatures with thirsts and aches and longings and desires and pains. And I don't know about you, but sometimes God feels very intangible, right? Like, I don't know how to get my hand around. How does God, who I can't see and I'm not even sure if he exists, how does he help what's going on in here? And so what we do is we dig our own cisterns, right? our own human things, our own wells that we think, I can, I can see this, and I can go to this, and this is going to be the thing that's going to bring meaning and purpose and security to my life. And you know, all the usual suspects, right? Sometimes we dig that well of success, accomplishment, thinking that's going to satisfy, uh, or wealth and possessions, or beauty, or sex, or human praise and approval, or family, or our children, or food, or drink. All of these things that we say, I can't see God, but, but I can see my kids, right? I can see, I can see money. This is, I'm going to go to this again and again. This is going to be the thing that, that satisfies me. Uh, and they kind of work. Uh, until they don't, right? Like, they, they kind of work until we, over time, realize, oh, actually, I think this soul was made for something actually bigger than all of that. 
And this woman is confronted with that by this man, but not in a way to judge her, not in a way to condemn her, but in a way to invite her into a a whole different kind of well that he can offer her that no other man can offer her. And um, I love this. You know, wells, I mentioned this in the Moses series, wells are very significant places in the Bible. It's like a type scene. When you see a well in the Bible, you, a Jewish reader would think something. Wells are where future spouses meet in the Bible. It's just, that's how it works. So uh, let me tell you the first three examples of wells in the Bible. Genesis 24 is where Isaac and Rebekah meet. Actually, where Isaac's servant and Rebekah meet. So Abraham is looking for a wife for his son. He sends his servant back to his ancestral land, and the servant comes to a well, and he says, God, grant me favor today. Bring a woman here that she'll say, hey, can I water your camels? And just then, Rebekah comes walking up, and the man says, yes, this is, this is the one for my servant's son. And they get married. Uh, Genesis 29, Jacob and Rachel. Jacob is running away from his brother Esau, going back to his ancestral land. He ends up at a well. And lo and behold, who comes by but Rachel comes by, and they get married. Uh, Exodus 2, Moses is fleeing Egypt after murdering an Egyptian. He flees to Midian, comes to a well. There's seven sisters at the well, and they're being harassed uh, by these shepherds, and he scares off the shepherds, and one of these sisters is Zipporah. And Moses and Zipporah get married. So any Jewish reader hearing the story is thinking, oh, spouses meet at wells. And that's what's happening in this story. This woman is meeting the man she's been looking for her whole life, uh, but not in a romantic way. Uh, he is, he's, but he is the fulfillment of her deepest longings. And I love how this story ends. I know I've skipped so much in this passage, but in verse 26, it ends by him declaring to her, basically, I, the one who's speaking to you, am the Messiah. This is the first explicit Jesus' designation of himself as Messiah. He doesn't like to do that very often. And I love that his first declaration of himself as Messiah is to this Samaritan outcast woman. And I love what this encounter does to her. And essentially what happens is you watch the rest of this thing. She starts to become this spring of living water that Jesus was talking about. I love, look at the detail in verse 28. Then, leaving her water jar... The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, okay? All her life she's been going to this, with this water jar for this water and she leaves it behind. She's becoming a spring of water and she goes over to her community and it's spilling out and she starts being an evangelist for this person. I can imagine what the community thinks, hey, I've met this man. And they're like, oh, brother, right? Not another man, right? No, no, this is this different this time. It's different. And she, she evangelizes, she has very low social standing in this community, but she evangelizes to her community. Verse 30, they came out of the town and made their way to him. And then verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And Jesus stays with them in a Samaritan village for two days, many people becoming believers. I just love what Jesus does for this woman. He gives her dignity. He heals her brokenness. Um, he tr- utterly transforms her social standing in the community. And of course, he satisfies the deepest longings that she's been searching for her whole life. And this is who our Jesus is. Jesus, lover of our souls, 
Jesus, the one who says, come to me, all you who are thirsty. Come to me, those who ache and long, who have hearts that are, that are heavy and burdened and empty and restless and hungry. And I have something for you that the world cannot offer you. 